have your Bibles and turn with me to John's Gospel. We'll be reading from John chapter 20, we're reading the first 18 verses. Let's pray together. Up from the grave he arose, with a mighty triumph of his foes. He arose, a victor from the dark domain, and he lives forever, his saints to reign. He arose, he arose, hallelujah, Christ arose. We pray, Heavenly Father, together with the risen Christ, you had sent your Holy Spirit to anoint the preaching of your word. In Christ's precious name, amen. John chapter 20 and verse 1. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together. But the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes, but Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and to your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. May the Lord bless the reading of his holy and inerrant word. The story of Jesus' resurrection was well known to most of John's audience. Secular writers were aware of Jesus' death. And in the presence of a Christian community gathering around some man, they claim to have died and been raised. Paul tells Agrippa, King Agrippa in Acts 26, that this thing, meaning the resurrection, was, did not happen in a corner. This was not some secret revelation that happened to some person one day out in the field by themselves. But there were appearances, there were accounts of this all over Judea and spread throughout the Mediterranean world. John's audience surely were aware of the oral traditions. 
And maybe some of them had already heard from the authoritative books, depending on when the other Gospels were written. And all four Gospels relay the basic contours of the story. They have women arriving at the tomb. At least one is Mary Magdalene. Angels will say, do not be afraid, I know who you're looking for. He is risen, go tell his disciples. And they run off with a mixture of joy and fear. And they announce the disciples what they have seen and heard. And that is the same account in John's Gospel here today. Some other details that Matthew, Mark and Luke may have are not found here. And we'll see in a moment details here that are not found in the other Gospels. There is nothing in the accounts mutually exclusive. The other Gospels will have more than one woman at the tomb. Here we just have Mary Magdalene mentioned. But you notice in verse 2, she says they have taken the Lord out of the tomb. And we, we, we do not know where they have laid him. So clearly, even though Mary Magdalene is the only one mentioned, there are other women with her. She has a two-part visit. She comes while it is dark, and then she comes again with Peter and John. On the first visit, she sees the stone rolled away and says, I have to tell Peter and John. And then she comes back, on the, and on the second visit, she sees the two angels, and she encounters the risen Christ. And there is nothing in the account from John that does not fit with the other accounts. It is the same story from a different angle. But what seems curious to you, we know the story well, and it's wonderful to celebrate our risen Saviour. But what seems curious to you about John's account of the resurrection? And by curious, I do not mean what seems wrong. But what prompts you to say, why is this here? Why do we need to know that? Why is the gospel writer making a big deal about a seemingly insignificant point? Well, I saw three curious things this week in John's account of the resurrection. And the first is, why do we need to know who got to the tomb first? You ever wondered that? Why do we need to know who got to the tomb first? You see it in verse 4. We have Mary. She has come while it is still dark at the beginning of the chapter. And John mentions darkness only to indicate the time of day because light and dark is also a pre prevalent theme. So she's there when it's darkest, but the light is about to burst forth in glorious day. The stone is gone. She runs to get Peter and the disciple who Jesus loved, who is John. That's the way he loves to describe himself, and they go back to the tomb. Well, we read in verse 4 that they're both running together. They're running together, but John outran Peter and got to the tomb first. Why? Who cares? Other than John, apparently. Was it, you know, was it a race? Was it a race? Was the last one there a rotten egg? Did he, have, did he have some kind of forfeit going on? Why does John bother to mention it at all? Or one? Because it says something about the relationship and the camaraderie between Peter and John. And Peter and John were key leaders in the early church. And they're often tied together. You think of Acts 3 and 4. 
Who's preaching in the Sanhedrin, among the Sanhedrin? Who's getting in trouble with the law? Peter and John. They're together in Jerusalem. James has a leadership over the church, but it's Peter and John who are often seen together preaching the word. And perhaps there's some suspicion that maybe there be, there's some perceived rivalry or some human rivalry going on, some jealousy of a potential for a faction, the Peter or John faction. But John 21 and verse 20, Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who had also leaned back against him during the supper, and had said, Lord, who is it that's going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? And Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. So there's a unique relationship between Peter and John. And even at the end, John feels the need to mention that he and Peter are going to die in very different ways. It looks like they're going to die in very different ways. And might there be some people saying, I'm with Peter, or I'm with John. We see hints in the story that Peter, even though John got there first, had preeminence. And might it actually not be a sign of John's pride, but John's humility? Because John says he was running and he got there first. John outran Peter and got there first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths there and did not go in. Then Simon Peter came and went in. Now, I don't think it was that John was nervous about going in. And then Peter, impetuous Peter, just rushes in. I think it's right to assume John waited for Peter. That John waited for Peter to arrive. He outran him, but he waited for Peter to arrive. Maybe, uh, probably there was a significant age gap. Maybe half a generation between Peter and John. Peter died many de decades before John. Now that would be as a martyr, so it does not necessarily say how old Peter might have been. But if John is going to live, as tradition tells us, up to 90 AD, and this is 33 AD, he's got 60 years left. So he must have been a young man, kind of my kind of age, you know. Um, but Peter already has a wife, he has a mother-in-law, he has a family. So there's an age gap. And there may already be a sense that Peter is the first among equals, preeminent in the early church. So John, quite apart from writing this, say, we had a race and look, I won. No, I got there and I waited and Peter went in. I think that, that, is, what, that, that is why it's recorded. And verse 4, the important part of it, these two leaders of the early church went in together. So I think it is there, and I think there's something about the relationship, the relationship, the respect between Peter and John that is important. That's the first reason I think it's there. Secondly, it shows that John was an eyewitness of what happened. It shows that John was an eyewitness. Maybe you've noticed in John's Gospel, whenever we have mention of the beloved disciple, or the one whom Jesus loved, and John doesn't mention his name because he doesn't want it to be about him. He's not the point. But this beloved disciple, whenever he shows up, very fine details follow. I'll just give you a couple of examples. John 13, verse 23. 
one of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned him to ask of Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? It's really fine, intricate detail. Fine, woven detail. John and Peter in a unique relationship. John is present. He gives eyewitness detail and testimony. Even to go so far as to say that he leant back in, in, into Jesus. These are conversations that John recorded himself. Or John 19, verse 35. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true. And he knows that he's telling the truth. But you also may believe. Which is why we have these details about what took place with the crucifixion. Not tearing his seamless garments. Not breaking his legs. Whenever we are introduced to John being right in the thick of thin, things, we have in, intricate, fine details that can only come by eyewitness testimony. So the reason why it is significant that John outran Peter, why mention it? Why mention the detail in the first place? Is it because it is a detail you would not otherwise know or bother reporting if you are making up a story? Yes, I think so. It's a timestamp on the event. It is proof that this incredible story is not incredible, it happened. So that's the first. Here's another strange occurrence. What about verse 7? Why do we need to know about the face cloth? Why is it significant that when they see the linen cloths and the face cloth separate from them, folded up in a place by itself, and John goes in and believes, for as yet they did not understand Scripture that he must rise from the dead. So they're not all putting it together, but there was something about the face cloth folded up in the corner, which triggered, John said, I believe he is risen. Well, that seems strange, just to me. That seems a bit of a curious detail. The significance of the face cloth is not that it miraculously bore the imprint of Jesus' face and still does today. Which is where some get the false idea of the Shroud of Turin from. No, the explanation is far more ordinary, but far more theologically significant than that. Because you're meant to see the deliberate contrast with Lazarus. This is glorious, by the way. John 19, verse 14, they said, They took the body of Jesus and they bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. So Jesus was buried, just as Jewish custom. So we can draw from that that Jesus was buried in the same way that Lazarus was buried. Your body, the body would have been placed on a large sheet, which was folded over, from the head down to the feet. The ankles would have been bound, the arms tied to the body, and the face covered with a separate cloth. So Lazarus, when Jesus called him from the grave, just imagine it, he would have been kind of, you know, he would have been, oh, sorry about that, but he would have been hopping, he'd have been shuffling. He would have been, he had this long blanket that bound at the head. Lazarus came out of the grave literally bound in the bands of death. 
which is why we read in John 11:44, the man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said, unbind him and let him go. Jesus said, unbind him and let him go. His face, Lazarus's face was wrapped with a cloth. Suderinin is the word in the Greek. And it's the same word in verse 7. So you see the massive difference. Oh, Lazarus, my friend, was a miracle. Jesus called him from the grave. But he came forth with the bands of death wrapped around him. He was resuscitated. His was a restoration. His was a resumption of his existence. And very poignantly, he was shrouded in the, in the clothes of death. And Jesus ordered that those bands be unbound. But we have something very different and very glorious because Jesus strode from the tomb. 1 Corinthians 15 said that he was given a new spiritual body. The first fruits of our resurrection. And part of the significance here is not that Jesus' resurrection was of a wholly different character than Lazarus. But my friend, Jesus has no need anymore of grave clothes. He had no need of them because death has no hold on him. He was done with death. He conquered death. Lazarus would die again, but Jesus would not. Jesus had no need of the grave clothes because he had vanquished death. So we're meant to see from that detail this deliberate contrast because face cloths were mentioned in Lazarus and face cloth is mentioned here. There is a difference, believer, between Jesus' resurrection and Lazarus's. And it's evidence that demands a verdict. Which is why the face cloth leads John to believe. That cloth folded up sitting all of its own, is a symbol, is a picture, told John that death had been vanquished, that Jesus had no need of it, because the grave could not hold him. Jesus, John is going to say at the end of his Gospel, there are more signs than could possibly be written, all the signs that Jesus did. Well, here was another one, my friend. Seemingly ordinary, a face cloth folded up. It is a wonderful sign. It means that this was not an act of grave robbers. A grave robber wouldn't fold up and leave it, leave it to a side. If grave robbers came, and they were certainly grave robbers in the Roman Empire. At the time of Emperor Claudius, grave robbing, destroying tombs, stealing bodies was punishable by death. But no, the face cloth folded tells us this is not the hand of grave robbers. It is the hand of God. That this body wasn't snatched by a friend or a foe. Jesus hadn't swooned and gotten sick and now he kind of stumbled out. No one who is trying to make Jesus into a resurrected hero grabs his body and unbounds him and sends him out and folds up the face cloth. It is a detail there for our assurance. Grave robbers come and pay attention to the laundry? No. His body wasn't stolen. Jesus didn't stumble. This is not a prank. This is not a joke. This is not a euphemism for victory out of defeat. No, there was a dead man in there and he's not dead anymore. 
He is alive, just as he said, and death could not hold him. So far from being an extraneous detail, the folding of the face cloth is a glorious sign. And it led John to say, I believe. And in verse 3, verse 3, the, first, the third curious thing that I noticed, verse 17, why does Jesus speak this way to Mary Magdalene? Presumably she came back with Peter and John and presumably she did not go into the tomb to see all that they saw. But she, we're told deliberately in verse 11, was there weeping outside the tomb. And she sees the angels and then she speaks to Jesus and then in terms, in a moment of tender affection, Mary. It's the living embodiment of John 10, verse 3, to him the gatekeeper opens, the sheep hear his voice, and he calls those sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. She did not know who he was. There was something about his body. We see this tension in the New Testament that the resurrected body of Christ, on the one had it can be touched had visible wounds. It could cook fish, it could eat, it could pass through grave clothes, it could appear in a locked room, sometimes to Mary, those on the road to Emmaus. He was unrecognisable until he spoke her voice. Are you hearing Jesus speak your name this morning? Are you hearing Jesus calling you to believe? to repent. Perhaps you've been around church your whole life and on this Easter Sunday you say, I believe. It is not a story. This is life. This is history. This is doctrine. This is everything to me. She heard him speak her name and when she heard his voice, she clung to him. He spoke her name. She recognised him and she clung to him, but Jesus said something strange, do not cling to me. So she's on a, her face in a posture of worship, clinging to her risen Saviour's feet. And he says, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. What does I have not ascended to the Father have to do with do not cling to me? Well, the state of the resurrection is in one sense not complete until Jesus returns to the Father. I think sometimes we're so locked in to reading the gospel to the cross and to the empty tomb, and we must be, that sometimes we miss the importance of the ascension. Because John 3 verse 13 says, No one has ascended into heaven except he who de descended from heaven, son of man. And in John 3, Jesus is looking forward to the literal climax when he will ascend and return to the Father. And what he means in verse 17, John 20, verse 17, is salvation's work has been accomplished, but I have not reached my goal. I am on my way going to my Father. Jesus talked this way all the time. John 14, verse 4, and you know the way to where I am going. John 14, verse 12, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. John 14, verse 28. 
You heard me say to you, I'm going away and I'll come to you. If you loved me, you will have rejoiced because I'm going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. Again and again, the Lord Jesus says, I will convict the world, the spirit of judgment and righteousness, because he is going to the Father. So Jesus, throughout all the upper room discourse, was speaking of this as his terminus, as his goal. Go tell the disciples, because when I go to the Father, I will send the Spirit, and you'll be able to dwell with me forever. So part of what Mary was to tell, undoubtedly, was the message where Jesus puts it in the present. I am ascending to my Father. He does not literally mean right now he's floating up, but he's, now he's resurrected, he's in the process of returning to his Father. And he says something very striking, go tell my brothers. He's speaking in a way that he has not spoken very often. The promise of sonship was at the beginning of John's Gospel, John 1 verse 12, but all to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So this promise was there from the beginning. You will be a child of God. But Jesus has not said much about it. It has Father, Son. God is his Father and he is the unique, the only begotten Son. But now that his work is complete and he's almost reached the goal of his ascension, he gives them the right to sonship. Go tell my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. The right of sonship, in other words, can only come to the disciples after Jesus has completed his mission on earth and now his work is complete, he can return to the Father. You are now my brothers. My Father is your Father. My God is your God. That is why Jesus says to Mary Magdalene, do not cling to me. I have to finish my journey, he's saying. I have to return to heaven and to my home and return to my Father. And it will be better that I go because I will send the Holy Spirit. And now my work is reaching its completion. You are family. My God is your God. My Father is your family, your God. So I want you to think with me. All that Jesus' resurrection means. Why we're gathered this morning celebrating that Jesus is alive. It means that we have a new Adam. We have Jesus doing what the first Adam could not. On that day, you eat of that fruit, you will surely die. And my friend, we're here to celebrate that Jesus has overcome the power of death. Death could not hold him. Death could not hold him because the wages of sin is death and he paid the wages of sin so death had no claim on him. He couldn't stay dead. He couldn't stay dead. He is a new Adam. And if you believe on him, he brings us into a new family where we're counted as his brothers and sisters and now we who know and call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ have God as our Heavenly Father. Have you put your trust in the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ? If you have, you are his brothers and sisters. 
And those who call on the name of the Lord Jesus know God as their Father. So he gives us a new Adam. He gives us a new family. And my friend, he gives us a new beginning. This is a new epoch in salvation history. A new community. A new era. There are very few times that you can say, and the world will never be the same again. There are very few times. Covid messed up a whole bunch of things. Lockdowns have affected the economy. Think of our children's futures. It's a major, major, major event. But will it be remembered in 2,000 years? Will it be remembered in 2,000 years? Doubtful. But this history will never be forgotten. A new beginning and the resurrection assures us of a new ending. Death does not have the last word. If you are a believer, you do not have to fear death. Because death does not have the last word. I was talking to Sid this morning about S.M. Lockridge and his, 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 his sermons. And one of them is, it's Friday, but Sunday is a coming. And it's Sunday today. It's Sunday and Christ is risen. And we can endure Saturday because we know Sunday is coming. And we know the tomb does not stay, the, the tomb is empty. Oh, brothers and sisters, all of you who are Christians, we are different because we know the end of the story. We don't have to wonder how the story ends. We don't have to wonder, is there a happy ever after? You know, at the end of those kids' stories, they all live happily, happily ever after, and you think, no way, who wrote that? But we can. We can. We can. We do have a happy ever after. We don't have to wonder if good triumphs. We don't have to wonder if death has the last word. It does not. And one day, every tear will be wiped away. One day, death will be no more. And all the coffins on earth will be laid aside. And all the burial cloths will be folded up in a corner and put away, not just for winter, but forever. In the resurrection, we have a new Adam. We have a new family. We have a new beginning. And we have a better ending than we could ever think possible. He is risen. Hallelujah.